I remember myself uh, once that was like, I don't know, it was one of those moments that you are seeing things really clear, at least yeah. the impression that I got. And I was coming to a meeting to, with my boss and we were going together and my boss, my boss was really stressed out. And then I look at him really stressed and I said, look, I gotta get, catch up on, on pain and piece of paper because I need to pretend that I care about this meeting. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Welcome back, guys, to the Max Out Show, where today I'm joined by not just one, but two very special guests. So with me in the studio right now is my buddy, Leandro, who's having a little fanboy moment right now because we'll be talking to Brett Warner, founder of the Zoto Zen Meditation Center in Los Angeles, as well as a punk rocker, ordained monk, and creator of monster movies. Brett is also author of Hardcore Zen and many other books on Zen practice, monsters, and death. So, Brad, welcome to the show. Thank you. That was a great introduction. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll dive deeper into some of these things. But oh, I yeah. want to get started with your favorite French fry shop in Amsterdam. Because I've, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I've, yeah, I've been yeah. to that shop a, a couple times, actually, because my brother is studying there. And yeah. it was interesting to me, right? Because there's this, this interesting distinction between pleasure in the, the real world versus sort of the yeah, spiritual yeah. world. So how do you try to balance the, the two sort of worlds and bring them together? Well, yeah, well, I'm, tr I'm, trying to I I'm trying to remember the name of that French fry shop because there's two right next to each other on the same street, but there's one that I think is better than the other. But anyway. <laughs> so um, maybe we're not talking the same one. <laughs> well, I don't know. They're both all right, but I just thought the one was, anyway, the one nearer to the station was better. Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, they, uh, how to balance it, I, you know, it's, it's a, when I first got interested in this practice, I was a, a student at Kent State University in Ohio, and I was playing bass in a punk rock band that reformed later, so I'm still playing bass in the same band. We were split apart for, for several years, but uh, we came back together. And uh, I was looking for something real, you know, that's the reason I got into punk rock was because I felt like uh, music at the time, this is the early 1980s, was very uh, superficial and very, uh, it, it almost sounded like it was made by a corporation, you know, trying to sell more records or, or CDs or whatever. And the punk rock scene seemed more real and honest. So I got into that and I was also a student, as I said, so I took this class called uh, Zen Buddhism. And the only reason I took this class is I, I had some idea that maybe Eastern religions were going to be interesting or something I could get in, into. Because I'd lived when I was a child in Kenya, in Nairobi, uh, Kenya. So I'd seen a lot of in Indians and Hinduism around there. And I really wanted to take a class about Hinduism, but there was no class offered about Hinduism, but there was a class about Buddhism. So I thought, okay, I'll so take like that. So like the next <laughs> closest thing. Yeah, yeah it's close enough. And when I heard, uh, I really was, uh, the, the teacher there was obviously very, very sincere and, and a very um, a good guy and a good teacher. And he had, he had studied, he was also an American who'd studied Zen uh, from a young age. And I just felt like, well, this is very practical. Uh, it seemed to be very... Um, something I could do, something that made sense, and something that had a depth to it as well. 
but the way he taught it, the way Tim McCarthy was the name of the teacher, the way he taught it was very, he was also very down to earth. He was, uh, he was about 10 years older than me, which would have made him, you know, if I was 19, he would have been 29, you know, so he was still, he was, he was pretty young, but he'd been studying since he was like 12 years old or something like that. And, uh, so, so I could see that he was able to approach it and, and do this practice and still be a fairly normal person. And I thought, well, if he can do it, then I can do it too. So I had a good example in, in that sense. And, and then I just kind of traveled on and, and lived the rest of my life. And I, I uh, ended up going to Japan and I found a teacher there who was also not, he was also kind of a strange guy, you know, he was not, he, he worked for a, uh, soap company soap and cosmetics company during the day and then but he really was devoted to zen practice as his main thing he just worked for this company and that, that also provided a good example of how one could kind of make this fit into the regular world if that's i don't know if that's a good answer but <laughs> yes yeah that's fine um uh i would like to to bring to you the point, the relation between uh, happiness and freedom, because somehow I think that we, as human beings, we kind of crave for freedom, and as and we got the democracy that's always based on freedom and all this stuff, and uh, somehow I think that happiness might have something to relate with the freedom or the feeling of freedom. Well, it's an interesting question. I, I haven't really thought about it as such, but if I, if I had to think about it, uh, happiness and freedom, I think one of the things that you get in Zen practice is discipline. So you, there was a, um, a Zen teacher named Shunryu Suzuki who made this statement about a Zen, a, what's called a seshin, which is where you get together and do Zen for several days at a time. And he said, it's like putting yourself in jail. Uh, and, and it, it is in a way, you know, it's it, because you, you, you voluntarily decide to put yourself in a situation. I mean, it's probably not as bad as being in jail, but it's very restrictive. You know, you have to get up at a certain time every day and you do these practices and, and every, every moment of the day is scheduled. So it, it's, um, it's a good way to learn discipline by, you, you use your freedom and you use your freedom to choose uh, something which a lot of people wouldn't think of as necessarily being free um, because you choose to, to follow certain regulations. So it's a bit of a, a kind of a funny balance. It's good to be able to choose it for yourself. You know, I mean, one mm -hmm. of the things I don't like about the quarantine situation is I, I didn't get to choose it for myself. You know, it was <laughs> imposed on me by the state of California and the, and the United States government or whoever. I don't know who decides these things. But um, I found that what I'm doing lately is devoting myself to Zen practice almost as if I'm on uh, uh, my own little Zen retreat. So I'm doing a lot of Zazen now and... and uh, almost exclusively devoting myself to the practice while while I'm on this lockdown. So it's, it's a good way to kind of find a balance between freedom and non-freedom. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 there's this quote that I love that reminds me of, which says, uh, like, discipline equals freedom, right? So like yeah. you have to be sort of disciplined in some aspects of your life to gain more freedom and sort of 
also even freedom from from impulses and desires and all that right yeah for sure you you have to kind of uh if you want to have a happier life you have to you have to establish some kind of discipline in your life and i really think there, there's a line at dogen is the guy who founded the sort of zen that i, I practice and he has this very interesting line in one of his books in which he says, even doing, even working for a salary, you know, for, for pay is a kind of way of giving to the world. Um, free giving is a kind of a, a concept in Buddhism that's always very highly thought of. So he says it's free giving. And I, when I was reading that, I thought we kind of choose these situations. We don't... Um, we resent it, you know, I think a lot of us, uh, me included, when I'm working a, a normal job, I resent the fact that I have to go into work at a certain time and do all these things in order to make money. But I think deeper, there is this kind of desire to, to have a, a, cer a certain amount of um, restriction on your, on your action so that you can find real happiness. And if you have too much of what people call freedom it just becomes kind of chaotic you know it, people get into all sorts of terrible things like get into drugs and, and uh, you know heavy partying and stuff that become damaging to them after a while and uh, and what starts off making them happy very quickly turns into something that doesn't make them happy Whereas if you find the way to make the thing that you have to do anyway, <laughs> a source of happiness, I think you can be happier. You just kind of look at it differently. Yeah, for sure. Yes. And also like related with that, with this freedom part of the question, like you talk about, I don't know, it was on a blog and on, on one of your books, you talk about this, uh, this thing of you not identify yourself with your own emotional states. I think it was in your latest book. Uh, I think one of the chapters you mentioned about you have to learn how to how to not identify you with your how not to own your own happiness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In yeah, order yeah. to not own also your own depression. So, uh, and I think that we is somehow kind of a freedom a freedom of your own uh, emotional states. If you want to call it like that. Well, it's, it's a kind of a funny thing. If you really, really look at it, you, you never own your own emotional states. Emo emotional states are something that kind of come and go. It's, it's almost like weather. And if you, if you look at it that way, as it, instead of saying that I am angry, you know, or I am depressed or, or whatever, you just kind of look at it as, as going, okay, depression is happening anger is happening i i can just let it happen without without saying it's my thing and it's kind of a, a general problem it, you, it, zen talks about this uh, advaita vedanta a lot of different philosophies even christian mysticism sometimes talks about the fact that we we don't we are we are not what we think we are you know ultimately we we imagine ourselves to be this one uh, certain thing you know, a, a, a single human being who has a life and a beginning and an end and, and all of that. But, uh, and everybody in society agrees to look at it that way, but people who have examined this through meditation go, oh, well, that's not really true. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm not, I'm not this thing that, that owns an emotion. I'm not, I'm not this thing that is, 
I'm not my emotions. I'm not my personality. I'm not my memories. Um, what I am might be something much bigger than that. And, and this, this little part here is, a, is an expression of something very big. So, you know, when an emotion comes along, it's sometimes difficult to manage, you know, because you, you, you're, uh, you, you learn from an early age to react to, in a certain way to your emotions. But if you, if you sit, you know, the, the type of zazen that we do is called just sitting. So you, you actually don't do anything except pay attention to the, the act of sitting still you know, which is one of the most difficult parts of this, this kind of meditation, because most kind of meditations give you something to focus on, but you're just focusing on just stay still. Uh, and, and if you stay still for a very long time, you start to see that, oh, I can stay still even when this emotion is coming or, or when I don't feel good, or, or sometimes it's even harder to stay still when you do feel good, you know, you want to jump and, and laugh and, and be, you know, have fun or something. But, um, I think it's a good practice for learning to, to work with those emotional states. Yeah, so on that, on that, would you say that if you don't, if you don't feel attached or if you don't identify yourself with, you, with your emotional state in, the, the, in that moment, uh, like the negative part of the emotion, like depression, would be, you would suffer less if you... Yeah because you don't identify with that. What about the, the, the good emotions? What about like happiness? Well, so do you, do you think that is less fulfilling if you don't identify with your emotions when you are feeling like happier? Actually, I don't. I, I think, it's, I think it's, uh, it's just as fulfilling. This is one of the parts where it gets very tricky sometimes to explain because the only way to... As, as far as I know, you know, after practicing for a long time, the only way to let go of the negative emotions is also to have the ability to let go of the positive emotions, of the, you know, so you, you can let go of it all. Um, but what, what happens then is that you don't get caught with anything. So, so you might imagine that would make a person kind of dull or, or they, don't, they don't have any, you know, because they're letting go of it, even everything good so they never even feel happy. But my experience with it is that I, it makes me feel happier. It makes me feel a lot lighter. Like there's nothing, there's nothing that, that uh, can catch me. Well, I don't say nothing. You know, sometimes things can catch you. But, uh, but not for very long. Uh, that's been my experience. And, and it was good for me to learn this by studying directly with the teacher. Because if I, if I had an imagination of, uh, you know, a, an idea of what a Zen teacher would be like and or read it from a book and imagined how it would be, then I might feel like, oh, I don't, you know, that, that sounds awful, <laughs> you know. But I had these teachers, these two teachers who were very uh, strong personalities. Tim McCarthy, who I mentioned earlier, and Gudo Nishijima, my teacher in Japan, uh, who, you know, they laughed. They, they had a good time. They, they seemed to be enjoying life. They seemed to be enjoying life more than I did because they weren't so uh, caught up in, in the little things. And, and, so, and so even letting go of happiness, it, it doesn't necessarily mean happiness stops. You just, you just let go of it, you know? Yeah. You just, you know, you can still have it, but you just don't, you don't feel like... I mean, that's what makes happiness... Uh, 
go away. I don't know. Is when you try to hold it. You know, you try to hold on to the thing, and then and then you can't hold on to it, and that makes you feel anxious, and then you know you're back where you started. Um, so yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah cool. So, so this one, this question that I'm reserving for now is might be tricky. I know that uh, between the Zen, the Zen schools and the Zen practitioners, so discussing about that, but may, might be tricky. But you spoke about that already in one of your books that I read. Is what is your view about enlightenment? I want to uh, go a little bit deeper in that. Then. Well, yeah, that's a tricky one because uh, I mean, there's a kind of a how do you go? I mean, there's this idea of, of uh, in Japanese, the word is satori. And when, when uh, Zen was first brought into the West, uh, it, it was the most, well, one of the most popular teachers or writers in, in the U.S., at least in the 50s and, and um, or so, was D.T. Suzuki. And D.T. Suzuki talked a lot about enlightenment, satori and gave people this idea that there was a kind of finish line like you 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 do your practice you do your practice and then you have satori you know and everything ah you know and then and then from then on you're enlightened and everything is is great well my own experience is that it doesn't really work like that you you um you can have moments associated with practice in which things become very, very clear. And usually it happens rather suddenly. And most people who practice for 10 or more years will have uh, you know, a moment like this. You don't, you don't generally have it when you first start, but if you continue on with the practice, you'll have these kind of uh, moments. And when they happen, it can feel like, oh, I've turned the, you know, I've, I've completely changed and I've transformed into a new sort of person. I mean, when, when it first happened to me, that was my impression. And then gradually I realized, oh no, I, I'm, I'm still the same person I was before. I just know something uh, that I didn't know uh, before. And it's something that's very hard to explain in words, but it's, a, it's the actual experience of seeing that, that my connection with the universe is very, very deep and that there, um, that my, um, my feeling of, of self is a kind of, um, a trick, you know, and a kind of a, uh, um, a mistake that I've made, <clears throat> but it is because it's such a strong habit after you have these experiences, the, um, the habit starts to, to come back and you start to, to feel like an individual self and you start to respond the way you used to and, and you can get stuck in it. So that's why I don't like this idea of uh, an enlightenment moment that changes everything forever because I think that caused a certain number of people, especially in the West, to, when they had these experiences, believe that they were somehow now finished, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And, uh, and I don't, I don't think it means you're finished. I think it means you, you just, um, you just had a kind of a, a moment, but, um, but there's still a lot more work to be done because there's always more work to be done. So yeah, that's why I don't even like to use the word enlightenment very much because I, I feel like it, it leads to all kinds of fantasies. Um, but I, but I also like to tell people that, you know, it's not, 
it's not a lie when people say that there are these moments of, of where you can <clears throat> see the very deep connection of yourself and the universe. But um, to think that once you have that moment, it's a kind of a finish line, that's the problem. Yes. So am I getting you right that, that this, the sense of enlightenment really is like, like brushing your teeth? Like you need to sort of repeat it, not on a daily basis, but like sort of in regular, irregular, whatever intervals to, to keep sort of reshaping these experiences, keep bringing them up again? Well, yeah, it's, it's not even necessarily bringing it up again, but you're, you're right. It's, it's sort of like, um, I always compare Zazen, the practice I do, the meditation I do to brushing my teeth because it's something I... I do every day and it's something that I don't feel right if I don't do it and then I go out and try to have you know interaction with people I feel like oh this is terrible I'm not worried it's not working out so <clears throat> the problem is um you you have to let the experience go it's like letting go of happiness or letting go of hap uh, sadness you know and, and it becomes very difficult because for most people who have these experiences it's a very big moment in their life so it's very difficult to let it go uh, you'll always remember it i think but um but but it, it is kind of well it's it's in another way the brushing teeth analogy works because you just brush your teeth and you don't you know you don't really go i brushed my teeth you know it's more like an ordinary thing that you do every day and just keep uh, <clears throat> keep going back to it i have been practicing that for for four years and a half now i would say and have been I've been doing that twice a day around like twenty minutes. Sometimes I do like thirty minutes, like twice mm -hmm. a day. So I have, but I have been doing that consistently. And uh, of course, I got like different different uh, attachments to it. So, but then I kept doing that. And then I would say that after one point, that it becomes like you mentioned, like brush your teeth. Mm -hmm. And but. Uh, Throughout the practice, what what I realize is there are there are days that you you not just after the practice or during the practice, but throughout the day, like just during the walk, what happened with me is like sometimes I got like a clear vision of something that wasn't clear to me. Yeah, yeah. And um, I got also on, on, on one that was less longer than I expect. I would say like I got in like different sensation for less than for two days, something like that. And I also got into running, and also that's one of the connections that I have with Max, because Max, Max is also my running coach. <laughs> so, okay. and what happened when you, when I do like exercise, like running, really strong, is especially during the races. So when you cross the finish line, so you are so tired, so tired. Is a lot of of uh, of your ego, I would put like that, is like dissolved. So. For yeah, instance, yeah. like you, you just lay on the ground. So mm -hmm. you just really don't give a damn to what the people think about you because you're so tired, you know? So, yeah. and I can relate with that, this sensation uh, at that right moment with um, some of the sensation that I got throughout the meditation. So, mm -hmm. uh, and I think they call that flow in, into runnings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also have a friend that he's a musician and he, he plays guitar and he says that when he's doing improv when he's improvising he kind of get into this into this sensation of him watching himself when he's like yeah. playing that uh, do you think that those those feelings are kind of the same or if like doing extreme exercise or playing music or running and doing meditation they are kind of some some sort of 
paths that leads to similar sensations? Well, I think it can be, yeah. My, in fact, my teacher, the, the one in Japan, Nishijima Roshi, he, when he was in high school, was a track runner. And he said often when he did lectures that this was the first place that he noticed what he called the balanced state, which, is, uh, which was his way of describing what happens when you do zazen practice. And so he, was, he, he used to say that athletes and people like that can often experience this balanced state kind of spontaneously through their, through their work. And, and I noticed that as a musician too. I mean, if you can call what I do a musician, but you know, sometimes there would be moments where, where I'm usually, usually it doesn't happen at home, but if I'm playing with an audience, uh, there'd be these moments of, of absolute like transparency, you know, I, I, that's the only word I can think of where it feels like the audience and me and the band, everybody's kind of doing something together and there's no, there's no ego to it. There's no self in there at all. It's just the music is happening. So I think that's the, that's, Good. And one of the weird things that Nishijima Roshi, uh, my teacher in Japan, said often is he said that Zazen was the easiest way to establish this state. And when I first heard him say that, I thought, well, Zazen isn't very easy. <laughs> I mean, people think, uh, you, you might think it's easy because all you have to do is one thing. You just sit still. But it's, you know, you try sitting still for you know, 40 minutes at a time and then stopping for five minutes and then going and doing it again and again and again, you know, like you do at a, a retreat. It's very difficult. But I, I could also see the logic if I think about it as being a musician, you know. Um, I don't know if this applies to, to running or not, but as a musician, there, in order to have the, the kind of moment that I'm describing, you know, you had to, you had to, get the gig you know you had to practice and rehearse and you have to kind of you know deal with the the, the whole because you're playing in a bar so there's a lot of drunk people and and it it doesn't happen every time you know you might have to play 20 shows before you have one where you hit that spot and it goes ah oh, that's that that's the one uh, whereas in zazen uh, you know also it's the same sometimes in zazen you just it just feels um like you just sat there for 20 minutes, you know, it doesn't feel like anything. Um, but every once in a while in Zazen, you notice that something much more profound is going on. And it seems to happen more often in Zazen, if, if I want to be honest, you know. And it's also very easy because you just put a cushion on the floor and sit, you know, it's, it's, so, it's so simple. Uh, that's one of the things people get wrong about zen they imagine that it's a very complicated thing but it's so it's it's ridiculously simple you know <laughs> stupid uh, I, I i i tell people that all the time that it's just stupid my in fact my teacher uh, his his people get a, what they call a dharma name when they become a, a zen uh, teacher and his his dharma name means the way of stupidity like stupid. <laughs> and uh, what's yours by the way uh, mine is um, Odo, which is the way of answers, like the way of responding. I don't know why my teacher gave me that one. That's why we he, got you on the show. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he thought I was, and I think maybe that's true because I find that if I'm going to teach anything about Zen, the easiest way for me to do it is in a, in a situation like this, mm -hmm. where, where somebody just asks me some questions, then I can answer. If, if I have to go up 
and I often have to uh, go up and give a lecture. You know, they say, here, give a lecture about Zen, and I just feel like, oh, well. So I just, whenever I give a lecture about Zen, I talk for the shortest time possible and then try to uh, get questions from the audience. You know, sometimes it takes 20 or 30 minutes of me talking before the audience is ready to ask a question. But then I feel like the teaching can actually start once they start asking questions. Before that, it's just sort of, um, I'm just sort of preparing it. <laughs> but uh, now I forgot what the question was. But oh, it's about uh, athletes and, and Zen and musicians. Yeah, I think, I think the balanced state can be found in, in different ways. But the, the, re the reason Zen is special is because it's very practical and consistent. You can do it every day and it's actually easy. You know, like I say, I could give the instructions on doing Zen. It takes me three or four minutes usually. We usually say five minutes when we're doing it in a class or something. But I'm usually finished before the five minutes is finished. You, know, you just sit there, stay still, keep your eyes open, stare at the wall, wait for the bell to ring. That's it. <laughs> 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 yeah so great yeah cool so uh, so i would jump to another one that's sure. that's related to attachment where we realize where we realized by my practice like first thing you start to note your own attachments so that's and sometimes you you gotta choose so sometimes you got the opportunity to choose the things that you get attached to Oh, yeah. this is this is some this is also related with the freedom that we just discussed before so because this i think that's really powerful so because we do have some attachments and i think might be that some attachment that we that we have is also good to have like the attachment to be alive to to, to, to not die is one of the attachments yeah. <laughs> some i think is useful and um, but but even that attachment depend of Depend of the depend of the sensation that you got, you can also see that this attachment to your own life is can be also a choice. I don't say that you can kill yourself, but you see that as a, as a, as a at least I got the impression that I could see that as a choice. Mm. And and we Max talks a lot about setting goals and mm. and other things. And I was discussed with him the other day, saying, look, look, when you set up and go. And you somehow also set up for you on trap of not reaching that goal. Yeah. And and also if you if the goal is like you if you have to work harder to achieve that goal, so you also have to have some sort of attachment to it or, or yeah. to have the willpower to, to do that. So how you see that the attachment and then the, the Zen practice and the, the non-attachment stuff. It's a, it's, a, it's a really complicated question because there's attachments and then there's goals. So uh, let me see if I can start with goals because one of the things that bothers a lot of people about Zen practice is we say it's a practice without a goal. So there's no, you're not trying to do anything. Uh, and and that's, that's really hard because you, you tend to kind of measure, here's what I am now and here's what I want to be, you know, and there's the goal and there's the gap and that helps you work. And the, the ironic thing about Zen is you have to practice it without a goal, but nobody is going to do Zen practice unless they want to change themselves in some way. Yeah. No, nobody would. It would be stupid. Uh, it's certainly not, you know, that's certainly why I did it uh, in, at first. 
so it means that in the you you have the goal you know it's there and and you have this thing but you also have to let go of any attachment to it any idea that it must be a certain way so as you're sitting you're 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 doing your zazen and of course everybody even me after doing it for over 35 years now i i i want it to be something you know i want you know, I want something to, to happen that's uh, positive or a nice feeling or a, maybe a moment of, of enlightenment or, or something. But as I'm sitting in the middle of that, anytime I, I feel that coming up, um, I have to let it go. I just have to say, okay, that's fine. You know, I, I feel like I want to have this other experience that I'm not having now, but, that, but what I really want to, to sink into is the experience that I'm actually having now. And, and I think that's, I think kind of this might be why running and some of these other activities are good for establishing a balanced state because, it, it, you know, you might run, for example, because you want to increase your strength or, you know, I, I don't know, various reasons you might want to do an activity like that. Uh, but in the middle of doing it, you can't, you can't think about, you know, all the things that you want, that you want to have happen. Uh, and, and especially if you're playing music, this is also the thing that kills you if you're playing music. If I start to think about what I'm about to play next, then I, I lose my place instantly and I, I don't know what's happening anymore. But I, but I also have to, uh, at the same time, pay attention. So I'm paying attention to what's going on, but I have to let go of any, any idea. And if I make a mistake, uh, I, can't, I can't get, I can't, you know, worry about that mistake I've made I just have to play the next note correctly you know uh, so so and make up for it and, and if I get lost in the mistake I also go wrong so it's the same with practice you know you you're but the Zen practices is kind of weird way to do that because you're not doing anything nobody sees you doing it you know nobody cares uh, even if you're sitting with a group of people nobody else cares what you're doing, they're just worried about their, their own practice. So um, if you make a mistake, there's no consequences really. But you have to kind of go on your own and go, okay, anytime I feel like this, this practice is no good, that's okay. <laughs> so I don't, so that's where the, you know, attachment is a kind of a, a funny concept because I just learned this uh, maybe less than a year ago, I was trying to write something about attachment and I happened to look up some source and it indicated that the Sanskrit word, which was, which was translated as attachment, it also has the meaning of fuel, you know, like gasoline or, or petrol or something, you know, you put in a, a car or something like that. Uh, and I thought, oh, that's, that's an interesting meaning. It's interesting <laughs> yeah. that the two meanings are connected in Sanskrit because, you know, it's not connected in English, but, um, but it's, it, it, the idea of, of fuel means you're adding some kind of energy to either a feeling like I want this to be some way, you know, I want it to, or I don't want it to be this way, you know, and you, you're putting some fuel or some emotion on that. Rather than doing that, uh, just let it go. Let it just be whatever it is and then keep on practicing anyway. <laughs> you know, that's really, it's something that's not easy to do. You know, I, just before we did this, uh, this uh, zoom meeting i was doing some zazen uh, and uh you know i was getting into the same the same problem of trying to make it be 
something else, you know, and I should know better after so many years, but it's, it's a kind of a habit. So each time it happens, I kind of go, okay. And the magical thing that happens is if you start to let it go, you can start to let those things go in every situation. You know, when you're having an argument with somebody, you let go of the idea that you want to win the argument. And, and sometimes that helps because, you know, some, sometimes it's necessary to argue with people to find the truth. But if the people are too much attached to winning, they can't find the truth. So, but if the people who are arguing are actually committed to finding the, the truth, then it doesn't matter who wins. Then, then if I lose, if I'm wrong and I lose the argument, that's good. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's, that's actually a good thing. So, uh, yeah, so, so it becomes, I, I, I kind of believe in this practice as being very useful to almost any situation, which is why I keep writing books about it and hoping that it has some influence on the world, you know, which is very big. But. Yeah. So, 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 so would it make sense then to say that, you know, the goal or attachment, whatever it is, is sort of that, that fuel that makes you sit down. But once you sit down on the, on the meditation pillow, you need to let go of it? Yeah, something like that. I mean, you always have a reason to, to, to want to do it. But yeah, but, but the only way it works is if you let go of it. So that's the kind of ironic thing. Yeah, and you just mentioned now that you 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 keep doing these practices. You you write books about that because you think that's useful to something. But on your yeah. late on the on your uh, latest book, you just have I think a chapter that's discussing about zazen is good for nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Well, that's that's a a, a quotation from my teacher's teacher. So this guy named Kodo Sawaki was a Japanese Zen teacher. And he was very famous for saying Zazen is good for nothing. And, and he would also say, if Zazen is not good for nothing, it won't be good for anything, <laughs> which is, you know, it's kind of ironic way of saying it. So, so saying it's good for nothing is, is you, you're not trying with your Zazen to make something else happen. So you're trying to get into the purity of just this moment. And you can do this with any moment, you know, the purity of the moment of just eating, you know, the purity of the moment of, of just doing an interview, you know, uh, any, anything you can approach in the same way and just try to do the thing that you're doing completely without doing anything else. And again, I think this is also why running and, and sports and things like that are, are, are a useful way to, to think about it. Because when you're doing that, you're just doing that thing. You know, and you're not, you're not doing something else. You're not, uh, you could be thinking about something else if you want, but that sort of uh, doesn't exactly spoil the moment, but it, it makes it, it's not quite as much fun, you know, <laughs> if, you're, if, you're, if you're thinking about something else rather than just concentrating on the thing. But then again, I, I don't want to talk too much about thinking because some people get very hung up on that. Like I'm thinking the wrong thoughts when I'm doing Zazen, but it doesn't matter. You, you know, whatever thoughts you have are, are fine. You just kind of have them and, uh, and let them go. Yeah, I want, I want to dive a little bit deeper here into this. I think you call it like staring into the darkness of your mind. So, right. so really looking at, at some of these, these really maybe distortions, maybe lies, maybe assumptions that we make about ourselves and about the world and other people. So how can people really go about sort of uncovering those things? Yeah, that's, that's a hard one because it's, it's one of the, you know, there's a, a, 
I'm sure this is going on. Oh, I know because I go to Europe every year and I always hear about it. That whole mindfulness movement is very big in the United States and very big in Europe. And one of the things that goes wrong with the mindfulness movement is people expect it to be, um, they, they call it mindfulness-based stress reduction, right? Yeah. So, and, and, and often people who do it find that they become more stressed when they're doing this stress reduction thing. <laughs> and, and part of the reason is because your mind is full of all sorts of things and not all of them are, are good, you know? Some of them are, are pretty dark. And if you do a practice of meditation, you know, at first, at first most people experience kind of calm and you know, euphoria and nice feelings. But eventually, if you practice long enough, you're going to start to, the, the darker parts of your mind are going to start to reveal themselves. You know, and this happened to me, it happens to everybody who practices. And those can be really difficult and frightening sometimes. It was good for me because I had a teacher. And when these, when these experiences would happen, I would just kind of come to him and say, oh, I had this experience, it was very weird. And he would say, oh, yeah, we all have that experience, it's all right. Yeah. And then, and then, if you go along with it, you notice that most of your experience isn't that darkness or isn't that you know that that awfulness. You know, that's just one little section of it, and and it comes up, you know, and it and it appears, and you go, oh, I got I got that again. But then you've already learned how to ignore it, and you know, because you're ignoring everything, and it just kind of goes back into wherever it came from, <laughs> and then you then you just keep going on with your practice. So, but the reason I emphasize it sometimes in my books, sometimes I think I talk about it too much in my books. And the reason is because I think about the, the other side, you know, the sort of mindfulness uh, people who are, who are pushing that don't talk about it enough. And so, and so it's become a kind of a problem. You know, there's websites and things you can find now just for people who gone into a kind of meditation program expecting to feel happiness and wonderfulness and then they have you know terrible emotional problems they end up going to seeing psychiatrists and, and stuff like that because they've had such uh, such difficulty with it and really if the teachers were better at preparing them and, and saying this, this kind of thing sometimes happens and it's not it doesn't matter that much, you know? Uh, and, and I think the reason it happens and, and the reason people get freaked out about it is they expect something and then they get something else and they're going, ah, this is, this is all wrong. But it's really not wrong. It's just part of the passing scenery, you know? And the, the scenery is sometimes good and the scenery is, is, the scenery is actually, in my experience, usually good. But then every once in a while, there's like some bad scenery, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and you, you just go, okay, that's that. I have to let that pass. And, and usually it's very uh, instructive too, because when that stuff comes up, you can learn something about yourself and go, oh, I need to change. You know, that's what often happens with me. I go, oh, I, I, need, to, I need to change a little bit. I have to stop doing, you know, some, something that I was doing or, or start doing something that I wasn't doing. And um, I always learn from those experiences. Yeah, what, what's so interesting to me is like this, this opening of the Pandora's box, right? Of like with all of this, this dark stuff in there, right? Because I think our culture nowadays, and you know, you mentioned US, Europe, it's like, like we, we do so much stuff to sort of keep the box closed, to hide from our real feelings, to hide from, you know, facing ourselves and even especially our, our darker selves, right? And those, 
those those beliefs we have about ourselves that may be limiting us and all this stuff that we have we're like trying to push that away right i think that's where like meditation comes in right and like you you open that up right and all of a sudden you have to face it yeah, if you're yeah. not prepared then yeah you might really struggle so I love yeah and it's it's good to know that i i i do feel that our society as a whole I mean, I don't know what the past was like, but I have this suspicion that people in the past were better able to deal with their, their darkness than, than we are now. Maybe not everyone, you know, because there were some people who did terrible things in the <laughs> past, obviously. But, um, but there was a kind of sense that it's, it's just something that's there and we don't have to... Um, it's not wrong that it's there. It's not wrong that you're not happy all the time. You know, it's okay if you're not happy all the time. Uh, sometimes it's good to not be happy all the time. And, uh, and, and, and I think, ironically, sometimes that, that understanding that you don't have to be happy all the time will make you happier, you know? <laughs> okay, I don't have to be happy all the time. So I don't have to fear that there's going to be some time in the future where I'm going to be sad. Uh, I just think, okay, well that, you know, that happens. And, and now I'm not sad, <laughs> you know, now I'm okay. You know, uh, I just, I just uh, try to limit my view a little bit to Jake. Here's what's going on now. Uh, anytime I try to expand it out into the future, it just becomes too, uh, too hard to, um, to deal with. It's just too much. I can't, you know, I just have to kind of go along day by day and see how the situation evolves as it evolves. Yeah, and I, I think this this ability to literally just sit there with even those negative and uncomfortable emotions, right, of like sadness or frustration or anger is so critical, right? And then also learning to to deal with and overcome these things. I think there's there's really this culture of like escapism, right? Where like there's, you know, alcohol and drugs and TV and social media and Netflix and all of this stuff that you can just go on and like try to forget about the stuff that's actually going on here yeah, yeah i think like you mentioned like like really learning to face that is so key yeah and 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 it's usually not so bad you know usually what you have to face is just this one situation you know this one little small situation that you don't have to fix the world you don't have to change it so everything is going to work out right for everybody all the time you just have to kind of deal with this one situation that's that's uh, facing you at this moment you know right now today this is the thing that's going on and sometimes figuring out how to do that is is difficult but uh, but i think most of us have more abilities than we imagine you know we we're, we're sort of afraid of uh, and and you're right about the distractions i had to with this whole um business that's going on right now with the pandemic and all this stuff i've had to really find ways to limit my uh, access to too much distraction you know so i i like i said earlier i've kind of put myself in a almost a my own little zen retreat situation where i'm not looking at the news and i'm not looking at most of social media and i'm just working on my practice and working on my study because there's you know the big problem uh, the big problems of the world uh, are I can't do much about it. You know, I can just do my contribution. You know, I can, I can try to do the thing that, that I can do about it and, and solving the bigger problem. Well, I can't, I can't solve it. I just have to kind of solve my, my own little problem. 
and then maybe help other people who who come into my you know area and help them solve their problems too but solving the big problems of the world i can't do that yeah so, so talking about problems i mean you talk about two different types of suffering in life so one is is this sort of inevitable suffering that will come up when you know you talk about any lost book marky right that that suffered oh, right, and yeah. died from cancer right and that those sort of that sort of suffering is inevitable in life right there will always be things that happen like this but it's also this, this sort of self-created suffering that we put on ourselves through comparisons through desire so how do we learn to rid ourselves of this self-inflicted suffering in our lives it's 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 a good question it's not easy because you you kind of it's it's again back to that idea of letting go so so often often your suffering is connected with a sense of self you know that, that i am this or i am i'm no good or you know i i, I don't know They're, different people have different ones that they think of and and it's, it's a kind of an attachment to bring back the idea of attachment. You're kind of holding on to an idea of something and, and letting go of ideas of something is, it takes practice. You have to practice letting go. And this is what I think uh, Zazen is. You're, you're practicing constantly letting go moment by moment. As you sit, you're, you're letting go of every sensation that happens, you know, the good ones, the bad ones that you just let them all go. Once you learn to do that, then the suffering that you're giving yourself is is easier to let go because you're just letting go of all the all the things that you do, um, and it's just one more of those things that you're you're letting go of. It's kind of it's easier to say than to do, though. It just takes practice of doing it over and over. Yeah, so so I can connect with that with the with the look into your darkness. So yeah. I remember myself, so I come from computer science, so I was always, I don't know if you know that, but in, in, in the whole computer science scene, we have this so-called open source community where the people basically, they, they do programs and code and they put it out free on the internet to the people to Probably, use it. Yeah. Yeah. So we might, might have heard about that. So, but then on the, on the open source community, we used to say, there's a famous saying, I don't know who said that, it's like the occurrence of the open source is the credits. So you basically you do that, but you want to have the credit because you want to be the, the author of that, you know. And I got this feeling once I did one program that's, that a lot of people are using and one friend of mine just come by and said, look, man, I have one piece of your code running my computer. I was really happy by that. So see, and, and this credit is basically your name. So yeah, it's yeah. kind of you, the, the, the person that you believe you are. And by doing the practice, so I realized that, I realized that this is, one this thing is not necessary you know and this is when it touched the dark part of the thing because i was so attached to it for so long i, I put so much effort to become like to become like recognized on the scene and to produce code and people have my name under the credit and then out of the sudden so through the meditation i come to realize that oops okay that's good but you know i once end up in the hospital because i was programming too much and also i did too much so it was was just too much so and I think that might be that once that you come to realize that part of the thing that you are really strong attached to or identify with, uh, when you see that that thing is like kind of is an illusion, yeah. I think it, you, one might like freak out or, or stop the practice, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
Well, it's a difficult thing because I mean, there, there is a, there's a kind of practical reason to be, you know, attached to that because you, like you say it's currency, it's the way you make your living and things like that. So, so, so there is a, there is a sense of, of, of it, it having some sort of a practical use. So the, the trick is to kind of balance it. You know, one thing, I don't know why this came up, but I'll just say it. When you were telling me this story, I was remembering a time when my teacher, Nishijima Roshi, I, I was writing one of the earliest blog posts I ever wrote because, um, you know, he, he passed away a few years ago. So I, I mentioned his name in it. And he read it and he told me a couple of days later, oh, I'm so glad you mentioned my name in your blog post. And I thought, wow, he thinks about things like that? You know, so, so, uh, so he also had a, a kind of a sense, but he would hold it very loosely. You know, he, he, would, he wasn't very uh, strongly attached to it, but he understood the practicality of it because, the, you know, the, the, he does do work. You know, I'm sure you do work. You know, he, he worked, in his case, very, very hard to translate this uh, ancient Japanese book, Shobo Genzo, into English, which is, you know, incredible amount of work. And, um, and so he wants to be recognized for the work that he did, but also he's not so attached to himself that he, um, he, he's going to cause himself problems by it. You know, he, he had a funny, funny way of balancing it because I know his working schedule was crazy to me sometimes. He, he would tell me, you know, sometimes if you get him talking about it, he would work eight hours in this, uh, in this job and then he would go home and he would immediately go up into his, his room and, and lock the door and start working for five more hours on translating Jobo Genzo. Um, and he did this day after day after day after day but he somehow managed to get enough sleep and not to get crazy about it. So it was this kind of balance, I think, that he found in, in doing it. Because you, you want to do something good for the world, you know? You want to do something that, uh, that contributes. But um, at the same time, if you can't, you can't contribute to the world unless you are balanced in yourself, too. Because uh, otherwise, you, you, know, you fall apart. You're, like you said, you end up in the hospital, you know? <laughs> you, can't, you can't work anymore. So, uh, yeah, it's a tricky situation. I don't know a good answer for that one. Yeah. So also, you mentioned, I think, one of your videos on YouTube, I think you mentioned that was also talking about, like, those deep experience, and you were discussing of how to not act, like, weird. So, because, um, and I'm asking that because I think that I might have come across some situation already. I remember myself uh, once that I was, like, I don't know, it was one of those moments that you are seeing things really clear, at least yeah. that the impression that I got. And I was coming to a meeting to, with my boss and we were going together and my boss, my boss was really stressed out. And then I look at him really stressed and I said, look, I gotta get, catch up on, on pen and piece of paper because I need to pretend that I care about this meeting. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, and, and for me it was, I even didn't <laughs> thought what I was, that's just the stupidity thing you should say, you know? And he was, uh, he was like, say, what, what do you mean by that? What's the problem? So are you upset or what? So after I said, okay, I should have said that. Uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah. you know, so you, one might end up like acting weird. And that's just one of the moments that I did those kind of stuff. 
Yeah, I think I had exactly the same situation. Uh, well, I mean, not not precisely, but I, I remember when I was working in Japan for a film production company and I had a boss who was very upset and and he was like, why didn't you do the thing? And, and I said, well, the situation wasn't ripe yet or something like that. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> well, you know, and I, I realized, oh, I'm talking like Zen zen way to him and i should be just saying oh i'm sorry i'm sorry i should i shouldn't have done this and so so from that i learned that you you have to kind of uh i just came across this passage from koto sawaki who i was mentioning he said we we retain the use of tentative names was the way he said it but i, I think he was talking about a larger issue which is you you have to talk like everybody else talks you know and and if you if you can do that, then you can make a very deep point. But sometimes if you do this practice, you're starting to see the world differently. You know, you're not, I'm not, I'm not seeing the world the way these other people are. And in fact, sometimes it's hard for me to understand, you know, I can, I have to think back to my past when I, when I saw the world the way they do and, and remember that and then go, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, try to speak in, in a way that, that somebody who's in that situation can understand. And if you can do that, it, it can be really useful. And sometimes you just end up talking like a normal person. You just talk small talk or whatever, you know, and just say the things that are expected. But, but sometimes that makes a difference. It's, it's funny, my teacher in Japan said something like, you, you know, just make a small difference. And, I found that very useful because I'd been trying to make a big difference sometimes, you know, trying to make a, a very large statement or something. And um, it wasn't working and I was getting frustrated. And he said, just try to make a small difference. And so I'd be, I started looking at, at it that way, just go, okay, I'll just do this one little thing and, and see if it moves everything this much. <laughs> <You> <laughs> Which is better because otherwise it's just stuck here or it's going the other way, you know? So I just go, <laughs> try to make some little, little small change. Yeah, so I would also like to ask you about the, the concept of no judgment. And why am I asking that? Because I remember when I started like into this, this practice and I was discussing with a friend of mine, I come across this concept of no judgment. And what I say to this friend, say, look, man, I think that's just impossible for one to not to, to, to have this no judgment stuff. I really didn't believe in that. So, but then I, after some time I realized that I, there was a situation that I used to judge that was not judging anymore. Yeah. It was not an act of, I was judging and I realized I was judging. It's just like the thing was there and I realized, oops, this was a situation that before I would have been judging that was bad or good. And now I didn't, this thought didn't come to my mind. And I come yeah. back to him to say that and he still don't believe, you know, he said, <laughs> no, no, we, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's that, that, I don't believe in that. So for him, it's hard still to understand that. And I know why it's hard to, discuss, to understand because I was also before not getting the point. What do you have yeah. to say on that? Well, it's, it's difficult because it's sort of, you, you, sometimes these things are just habits and you just have a habit of judging a situation. There's a famous poem called Faith Mind Inscription. It's a Zen poem, but it starts off with um, the way, the, the great way of Zen is not difficult, just avoid uh, picking and choosing. 
if the least <laughs> idea of like or dislike appears in your mind, you're completely lost. <laughs> and it feels like, oh my God, that's, that's awful. But it's, it's also not so, um, so big. It's just, it's just in this moment, just don't, you know, even if you find yourself judging, one of the things that I, I think is useful for myself is I just don't believe my judgment. You know, I might, I might think, you know, my, I might have a thought like, oh, that guy is being really stupid. And I might be right. But I also think, well, I could be wrong. Maybe, maybe in, his, in his world, there's something else going on that I don't understand. And maybe what he's doing is, makes sense, you know. So, um, so, so not judging is, is, is difficult. But if you practice it, if you practice not judging yourself, then it's easier to not judge others too. So, so if I'm just back to Zazen, if I'm sitting Zazen going, oh, this is terrible. This is, I'm not, you know, I'm just thinking about pizza all the time and I can't, you know, I can't have this feeling of bliss and spirituality. Well, I can think that way or I can just be like, okay, there's the pizza thought again. And then just go back to my practice. I'm not judging. I'm not saying it's bad to have a thought of pizza. I'm just thinking, you know, let go of the thought of pizza. And, uh, and if I have to do that again a second or two later, then I just let go of it again a second or two later, and it's fine. You know? it's, it's, that's, so not judging is kind of something, it becomes a new habit. And, and after a while, it becomes easier, uh, like any habit. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Now, if you could give our listeners just, you know, one piece of advice, one challenge, one action item to sort of take away today, what would that be? Oh, I don't know. Uh, do nothing. <laughs> do nothing. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, think, I think doing nothing is really hard for people, though. You know, just, just, um, just do, do nothing is, is also another way of saying it, just do the thing you're doing, but don't, don't concern yourself with the outcome. You know, just do it. Uh, purely as possible that would be my the only advice that i can think of that's good (laughs) (laughs) love that now before we wrap it up here uh where can listeners connect with you online oh uh well the easiest place is my my blog which is hardcore zen uh let's see hardcore zen.info sorry i forgot it changed (laughs) a few years ago so uh, so yeah, hardcore Zen is one word dot info. And then I have a blog there and there's links to my YouTube page, which if you just look up Brad Warner on YouTube, it usually comes up anyway, but, um, but, uh, the blog has links to the books and everything else that I do. You can order Perfect. a book. <laughs> <laughs> we'll link to that then. Yeah. Last question. What does it mean for you to max out your life? Huh. Max out my life. I guess it means to to do the one thing I'm doing as purely as possible. You know, that's in fact um I can't remember the Japanese word, but I was just reading it yesterday. There's a word that Dogen uses, which is almost kind of one way to translate it would be max out. You know, he talks about doing. Sometimes it's translated as completely exhausting the situation, but it's more like maxing it out, like doing the thing completely. Uh, so it's not like a big thing that's going to happen, you know, for years and years. It's just this moment doing this moment completely. Love that. Hey, Brad, Leandro, thank you so thank much for you. coming on the show, guys. All right, guys, that's it for today. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you gained some valuable ideas, tips, tools, tricks, mindsets, belief systems that will hopefully inspire you to take your life to the next level. At the end of the day, guys, it's all about application. 
The only thing that's going to set you apart tomorrow from where you are today is how much action you take with those ideas that you gained. And so I really want to challenge you at this point to, you know, not just listen to this passively, to not just consume this, you know, passively, just thinking about other things, but to really take those lessons, take those ideas that you just gained and start applying them to your life. So to really start taking action and sprinting towards those goals and those dreams that you have in your life. Now, guys, at this point, I want to ask you for a huge favor. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider heading over to iTunes and leaving a review as that helps me really grow the show and reach more people, impact even more people around the world. You know, if you have a family member, a friend, a loved one maybe that you think could benefit from this content, please consider, you know, sharing it with them, forwarding to them as that helps us really build a community of like-minded people that are all about maxing out their lives. Now, guys, with that being said, thanks so much for tuning in today. I really, really appreciate it. Stay strong and see you tomorrow.